Father God, thank you that you speak to us through your word, that you make yourself known to us. Thank you that we can hear you speak and we can come to know and love you better. Please would we do that today. Would you be at work in our hearts by your spirit that we might love you all the more after these few minutes now. Amen. I could die happy if... Fill in the blank. I could die happy if what? What would you put in there? I could die happy if England win the Euros. It's coming home. Uh, Some people might say that. Um, Sir Rod Stewart, a couple of weeks ago, said, I could die a happy man if Scotland beat England 1-0. Now, that didn't happen. Uh, And it's a pretty low bar for dying a happy man, really. Um, But people may say more serious things. I could die happy if I know my children will be looked after, uh, cared for, have a secure future. I could die happy if I know, I could die happy if I've achieved this goal, this goal, this goal, this goal, if I've, you know, ticked off my bucket list. But for many people, like Rod Stewart's hopes, their plans don't pan out, they don't tick everything off that list, and death comes round sooner than they would like. Life is hard, and things don't always go the way we want them to. Death is looming, and we feel that all the more at the moment. Death is all around us. And so asking that question, how can I die happy when life is hard and death is coming soon, is really something we do need to consider. One man who knew how hard life could be was Jacob. He was a man who lived a tough life. Sometimes he was on the run. Always, like always throughout his life, there was family dispute. And as we meet him in the passage today, he's had a miserable time for the last 20 or so years. He's thought his beloved son Joseph was dead, and it's been rough. Now there's a famine. It looks like it's going from bad to worse. But these two chapters here tell us how he came to be ready to die happy. And so we're picking up uh, Jacob's story after Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and Jacob's convinced, been convinced by them that he's still alive and is about to head off down to Egypt. He sets off um, and Joseph has invited him there so that he could be provided for during the famine. Now this is a huge moment. Jacob is really old, like super old. He's 130. He has to be put on a, put on a wagon as they, the brothers take him down to Egypt. This isn't a journey he's going to come back from alive. But when he gets to Goshen, the land that Joseph told them they could live in, it proves worth it. So this is what happens as we, as we arrive in verse uh, 28 here. Um, Joseph pulls up in his royal chariot to meet his family. He sees his father and for the first time in over 20 years, hugs him. We've been missing hugs over you know, the last year or so. Uh, This is a man who hasn't seen his father in 20 years. He hugs him and he cries. He holds him tight. And Jacob says to him, I'm ready to die. But God has other plans in store. Uh, He's got 17 more years to be alive before he's going to die. And so there's still more to this story of how Jacob can die happy. And we'll see that as we see how the story unfolds. 
So as the story unfolds, Jacob's family is blessed. Jacob's family is blessed. And we see that as we're looking from verse 31 in chapter 46. So Joseph's been reunited with his family. They're all back together. And he's forgiven his brothers for the harm they did to him, for selling him into slavery. But Joseph isn't content to just leave it there. He doesn't just want to wipe the slate clean. He actively wants to bless his brothers, to bless his family, even after all they've done to him. His mercy goes far beyond just forgiveness. So he comes up with a plan to bless his family. He coaches his brothers on exactly what they need to say to Pharaoh. He tells them, okay, tell Pharaoh you're sheep herders, just like your fathers were before you, because the Egyptians, they're not really fans of shepherds. The Egyptians were you know, settled agricultural people in their cities and those nomadic wandering sheep herders, they didn't really find them that great. So what he does, after he's coached them, he picks out five, probably the ones who you know, can best remember their lines, and he brings them before Pharaoh. Uh, and they say exactly what Joseph told them to. Uh, they asked to live in the land of Goshen after telling Pharaoh that they're shepherds, and Pharaoh gives them just what they want to dwell in the very best part of the land. Now, if you flick down to verse 11 in chapter 47, you'll see that Joseph gives them property. He settles his father and brothers in Egypt and gave them the property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh had directed. And then Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their number of children. Even down to the smallest child, Joseph provides all their needs. And it very much is their brother's provision. Just imagine what would have happened if these uh, scruffy sheep herders turned up before Pharaoh on their own. Imagine how different it would have been as they you know, got lost a few times on their way to Pharaoh's palace um, and then finally try and get an audience with him. If they managed to even get an audience with Pharaoh and then they ask, excuse me, can, can we have the best part of the land, please? I don't think Pharaoh is going to be giving these these foreign shepherds who are detestable to the Egyptians the very best part of the land. Like, he might even throw them in prison. We know he's more than capable of that. But see how different it is because of who their brother is. So look through the verses at the start of chapter 47. Just see through with me and see how they're spoken about. Joseph speaks to Pharaoh of them as my brothers, my father's household. And Pharaoh responds in kind your father and your brothers they're blessed because they are his family and he wants to bless them joseph invites his brothers to enjoy the benefits of his position he's the second in command over all of egypt and blesses them with land and food from his supply now joseph as we've been seeing all throughout our time in genesis is a foretaste of what jesus is like Joseph's brothers receive blessing because, well, because they're Joseph's brothers. We, if we've repented of our sin and trust in Jesus, have Jesus as our brother. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says this. It says, both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, that is Christians, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. 
If you're a Christian today, Jesus is your brother. And Jesus relates to us just like Joseph relates to his brothers. We, as Jesus' siblings, can enjoy the benefits of his position. He sits at his father's right-hand side, and his father listens to all that he says. And we can have confidence to come before our father and pray to him as he smiles at us like at his own beloved son. Joseph wasn't satisfied with wiping the slate clean for his brothers. He wanted to bless them. And Jesus does the same for us. For Joseph's brothers, it was really obvious how they were blessed. You know, they got great land, yummy food. They were given all that they needed. For us, when we become a Christian, it's not like we suddenly inherit um, a, a mansion on Bishop's Avenue or have an unlimited M&S food gift card or something like that. But as Jesus' brothers and sisters, we share in what he has. His access to his Father. We are filled with his Spirit. His Spirit that gives us gifts so we can serve one another. His Spirit that changes us and grows us and shapes us to be more like him. We're part of his family. And so we're a family together. That's a huge blessing. Being part of the church is a wonderful blessing. When we're struggling to provide for our basic needs, like Joseph's brothers were, God has blessed us with a family who can provide for us. When we're finding life hard, when we're finding keeping going as a Christian difficult, we've got brothers and sisters about us who can lift us up and cheer us on to keep going. Jesus doesn't just wipe the slate clean for Christians. No, he shapes us by his spirit. He pours blessing after blessing upon us and he makes us more like him. Now these blessings might not feel tangible like a house, land, food. But they are far richer. They are far deeper. They will last for far, far longer. We will see these blessings reach their fullness in the new creation when we gather around Jesus' throne and we bow down like Joseph's brothers before him and we experience the full measure of his blessing. Joseph's family are, are blessed. Jesus' family is blessed in the same way. We have this undeserved blessing, and there's only one thing we can do in the face of it. We praise God, give thanks to him for what he has done for us when we did not deserve it. Joseph's brothers didn't deserve what they were given, and, and neither do we. But this blessing isn't just for those who seem like you know, a natural fit in Joseph's family or in Jesus' family. It extends far beyond that family. Uh, others are blessed. As the chapter goes on, we see how Egypt is blessed through them. So Jacob's family is blessed, and then Egypt is blessed through them. So in the midst of this episode of Joseph's brothers being blessed, if you look down at verses 7 to 10 in chapter 47 with me, we see this peculiar little insert. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That seems the wrong way around. Normally it's the powerful one blessing the weak one. Surely it should be mighty Pharaoh blessing this scruffy old 130-year-old man who needs a cart to get to Egypt. Sheep herder. 
But no, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Why? Well, Jacob understands something of who God has made him and his family to be. Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, uh, God promised him, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. His family is to be a blessing to others. And Jacob believes that. So despite this massive power imbalance of mighty Pharaoh and weak old Jacob, Jacob is the one who blesses Pharaoh. And as he goes on, look at verse 10, as he's about to leave, then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. He doubles down on it. He really backs himself to bless Pharaoh. And this blessing comes true. It's fulfilled. Jacob's family is blessed and Egypt is blessed through them. And we see that as we see what Joseph does from verse 13. So the famine has taken hold of the whole land of Egypt and Canaan. And they are wasting away. So the people of Egypt and Canaan come to Joseph and they pay him for the food that he's stored up during the years of plenty. But their money runs out. And they're worried they'll die. So Joseph says, okay, I'll, I'll take your livestock in exchange for food. So they do that and they get by for another year. But there's seven years to get through. There's not enough food. They run out of resources again. And if you look at verse 18 with me, we'll just read briefly from there. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and all our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph buys up all the land of Egypt, and all the people are reduced to slavery. That sounds horrible. Has Joseph completely changed? Has power got to his head and now is he ready to just make a quick buck out of starving people? No. To our modern ears, when we hear what Joseph does to Egypt, it sounds shocking that a whole nation would end up in slavery. Yet this truly is a blessing for the people. This truly is a fulfillment of what Jacob was blessing Pharaoh with. When we hear slavery, we naturally think of the transatlantic slave trade and the atrocities that were committed there. This passage in no way condones slavery like that. However, in this ancient society, selling yourself to another was an accepted way of bailing out the destitute by transferring the responsibility to provide for themselves from themselves to another. It doesn't necessitate, it doesn't mean there's going to be abuse and maltreatment. At its best, it was rather like somebody exchanging being self-employed to being employed by another. There is a loss of freedom, but there is a gain in security. The Egyptians themselves are positively grateful to Joseph for being brought into this servitude. If you look at verse 25 with me, you see how they respond. They say, you have saved our lives. 
What Joseph does for the land really is a blessing. He saves their lives. The people tried as hard as they could to provide for themselves, but it wasn't enough. They needed a saviour. And blessing overflowed from Joseph. The blessing God promised wasn't just for a small group, but was intended to spread to all nations of the world. And we see this fulfilled in Jesus. Joseph, again, is that signpost pointing us to the true Joseph, to Jesus. And Jesus calls those who are far off to know his blessing. It's not just for Jacob's descendants, but for Gentiles, for people of all nations. And Jesus' call is the same as Joseph's. His call is, submit to me as king, become my slave, and you will know my blessing. Like becoming Joseph's slave, it's a blessing which might not sound good at the start. But to be a slave of Jesus truly is a blessing. I don't think I would naturally frame the gospel like that. I don't think that would be the first thing I'd say to somebody. The gospel, oh yeah, becoming Jesus' slave. But that's exactly what the gospel demands and requires of people who follow Jesus. At the start of his letter to the Romans, Paul introduces himself, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And it's because of who he is a slave to that it is no bad thing. A slave of Christ Jesus. In fact, this is the good news that Christians have to proclaim. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. Submit to Jesus as your king, become Jesus' slave, and you will know his blessing. It feels strange language for us to use, but it is true. He is the king who will provide for all those who submit to him. He's not just going to provide food for seven years of famine, but life for all eternity. He is the bread that gives life. That's part of what we'll be celebrating later in the Lord's Supper. All we can provide for ourselves, just like the Egyptians, it's not enough to see us through this life. We need a saviour. Perhaps for you, you haven't submitted your life to Jesus yet. Hearing that language of being Jesus' slave is something that makes you recoil and you're like, ooh, Perhaps you see that there's a price to pay to become a Christian, and it feels a lot. Can I encourage you? If that is you, consider the choice that's presented in the passage we've had today. Trying to make your own way in this world of famine will only lead to death. But submitting to the king brings life. And submitting to King Jesus brings life forever. Choose life. But perhaps you already are a Christian. And you can say of yourself, I have submitted to Jesus as my king. If that's you, then see in this passage how blessing is meant to overflow from God's people. We are meant to be a blessing to the whole world. And we can do this as we point to the one who gives life. As we point to the one who gives bread, which gives life into eternity. Point people to Jesus. When you see one of those famine appeals on the TV, it breaks your heart to see those people who don't have food. There are many people in this life who don't have the food they need to see them into eternal life. 
This story challenges us to point starving people to the source of real food, to point them to Jesus. And we have good news to tell because we know who that is. We can say, come to Jesus, come to him. And it might be a message which you feel uncomfortable to proclaim. You know, that that jarring message, become Jesus' slave. It's uncomfortable to say now, to ask people to give up their self-autonomy, that self-rule and become Jesus' slave. But when we know the blessing of being his, of submitting to him, we will want to tell others, despite the difficulty of it. God has blessed us. And he means us to bless the world. Now we've seen all this large-scale blessing. A whole family, a whole nation. But the final section of the chapter brings us back to the individual who started this story. Jacob. Jacob's life, Jacob's life's been a hard one. He said earlier to Pharaoh that, he said, my years have been few and bad. Whilst at 130 years old, few might be, you know, stretching it a bit. His years have certainly been hard. He had to flee his family. He was tricked into marrying the wrong woman. Then his favorite wife died in childbirth. His sons were scoundrels. And then for the last 20 odd years, he thought his beloved son Joseph was dead. Throughout the story, as things have seemed to go from bad to worse, he's had this refrain that he would go down to the grave in sorrow. But now, at the end of this chapter, Jacob is ready to die happy. Jacob's ready to die happy. Remember back in chapter 46, when Jacob saw that Joseph was alive, and he said, now I'm ready to die. Having his son seemingly back from the dead, restored to him the peace that had been missing for those 20 years but by the end of chapter 47 this old man who's had such a hard life is not only ready to die but he's worshipping as he faces the prospect let me read to you uh, from chapter 47 verse 27 again now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen they acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. It's a sign of making a sort of solemn promise. Put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him. And Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Jacob was ready to die happy and worshipping because he'd seen God keeping his promises. He knew the future was secure. The big promises that God gave to Abraham and repeated again to Jacob were that he would make his descendants into a great nation. He would give them the land of Canaan and he would bless them and make them a blessing to the world. People, land, blessing. Number one, when Jacob came to Egypt, he brought 70 people in his household. Now they've settled in the land of Goshen, they were 
fruitful and increase greatly in number. They're growing. That's our first one. We can already see God keeping his promise of making his family a great nation. People, land. When Jacob came to Canaan, left Canaan to come to Egypt, um, he was worried about leaving the land that God had promised him. But God said to him, I will bring you back. And now, as his son swears to him that he will take his body home, he trusts that God will bring his people back into the land. People, land, blessing. Having seen Joseph blessing his family and spilling out this blessing to all Egypt and Canaan, Jacob has seen God keeping his promise that his descendants will be a blessing to the whole earth. People, land, blessing. God, Jacob has seen it all. Even throughout his long and hard life, he can look back and see this. He's received his son back from death. And now God is working through him to fulfill his promises. He sees this and he worships an old man approaching his death, looks back over his life, sees God's faithfulness and can't do anything else but praise him. Now we have all the more reason to worship God for his faithfulness. We have seen it all the more in the one to whom Joseph pointed, the one who truly came back from death and is working to fulfill all his promises to his people, to make himself a kingdom of people from every tribe and tongue, who has secured a promised land for his people better than Canaan could ever be, and who even now is pouring out blessing on his people. This is how someone can die happy. When they trust God to keep his promises. That no matter what comes, famine, pandemic, hardship, death, God is working out his promises. And the future is safe in his hands. He will bless his people. And he will cause this blessing to overflow to everyone around them to the nations, that they might submit to Jesus as king and know life for eternity. If God's promises are sure, then we have hope for the future beyond death. We can die happy. Happier than a person who hopes that their legacy might last or that their children have a secure future. Those things are uncertain. We don't know whether they will happen. But we know that God's promises will last. And he has a sure and certain future of blessing in store. If we have known this blessing for ourselves, then let's join Jacob in worshipping God for his faithfulness, in keeping the promises that he's made to bless his people. Let's pray. Our Father God, you are so faithful. You keep your word, you keep your promises, and you are so kind. You make such good promises to your people. Please, would you give us confidence in what you have promised, that we might love and trust you, that we would be prepared to die happy knowing that you've got the future in your hands. Please would you bless us and make us a blessing to those about us. Amen.